Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the role of housing and land for well-being for households affected by disasters and we're going to be talking to uh, to Professor Piyush Tawari who is the Professor of Property at the University of Melbourne. Thank you very much Gabriella. Thank you for joining me. Um, So before we get going with our very interesting topic today I'd love to get to know you a bit better so do you mind introducing yourself? Yes, I am professor in property at the University of Melbourne. I have been living in Melbourne for the last 12 years. And during the last 25, 30 years of my academic career, I have moved around different parts of the world. I started working as a mortgage researcher with one of the leading housing banks in India. That's where I started my career 27 years back. And then I moved to Japan, where I lived for almost six years, teaching at a university there. And my role there was um, to examine property markets and also teach about property markets to very engaged students. And then from there, I moved back in India. I lived in Delhi, in north part of um, India, where I was advising governments as well as working with um, infrastructure finance companies, so a lot of roads and uh, ports and other kind of infrastructure that you see there whether they are good or bad. Uh, a lot of them were as an outcome of some of the work which I did there. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the UK and Scotland, pretty cold, in Aberdeen, where again I was working at university, University of Aberdeen within their property program. Then almost 12 years back, I came to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And since then I've been with the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. My area of work is related to housing and mortgage markets. Mm-hmm. and in the earlier part of my career, we were trying to understand housing affordabilities and challenges that people have, the mortgages and why people decide to take a particular type of mortgage and how they determine whether to prepay or what causes default and so on. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, I've shifted my focus on the well-being, looking at the question how housing contributes to well-being of household. This is a slightly different perspective because most of us, when we think about housing, we think about housing as an asset that's going to increase in value and so on and so forth. So when I retire, what the house will be worth and when I downsize, can I monetize it? But I think there is much bigger and more nuanced question which is around housing and its contribution to well-being, which probably we'll discuss today. And this becomes far more interesting and important when we look at some of those adverse events like disasters, where one of the consequences that many of uh, households who live in those areas, they lose their homes. Mm -hmm. And which basically means that some of those dimensions of well-being are lost. Then 
what should we do about it? How do we reconstruct some of those well-being? So mm-hmm. that's the question which we'll be investigating today. Yes. I think I'll stop here and let you. Yes, thank you. No, I'm very excited about our topic today because I think that it is unfortunately something that um, many of us are having to grapple with. Um, I know in Australia, we've had some flooding, we've had some bushfires and people's houses have been destroyed. And so I think that, um, you know, understanding how it affects us in more detail is really important, but then also how do we recover from that? Um, because uh, unfortunately, I don't think um, these, we, we can we can try and, you know, prevent these things by having better houses, but um, we're not going to be able to change everything. So knowing how to prepare ourselves and how to um, pick ourselves up afterwards is really important. Um, so uh, really looking forward to this uh, t- topic today. But before we do get into that a bit deeper, we'd like to do a section we call Have You Met Piyush, which is um, where we get to know you through some of your favorite things. Um, so the first thing we'd like to know is uh, what is your favorite book? All right. Okay. That's um, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Recently, I've been reading a book which is called Good Economics for the Hard Times. Mm-hmm. This is authored by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who won Nobel Prize a couple of years back. And they are the development economists uh, who work in developing countries on issues related to developing countries. This book is interesting, and maybe I will take a moment to tell you about book and probably motivate some of our audience to read that. So book looks at some of the questions that we are facing in the contemporary period, like for example, is migration good or bad for the for 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 the economy or for the country, which is the host to migration? And we have a very live debate in Australia uh, that migration is going to cause a rise in house prices, is going to cause impact on jobs, and so on. So the question then is that which we all debate is whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. Then the other question is that, okay, which we saw in the last few years about polarization and geopolitics, the way it played out. Mm. And uh, there were some trade bans um, which were imposed by the US on some other countries, on steel and aluminum and so on. So is trade good or bad? That's another. Is it going to impact on the well-being and jobs in the host country? Australia has a lot of its imports in construction and other sector, and there has been program from the government, so which is about like um, build it at home kind of thing. So the question then is that is trade good or bad, right? What this book discusses and probably highlights is that many of us, when we take decision or when we argue or we comment on politics or policies, it's based on our norms and beliefs without going through the hard facts or the data or what the data is telling us. When people are worried about immigration, when people are worried about trade, uh, they are pretty much looking at their own norms and beliefs, which are very myopic in, in that sense. They're not telling the whole story. Nobody goes back and does the mathematics. And all the television economists, as we call them, mm-hmm. uh, and, and their two minutes uh, discussion is very kind of superficial or on the surface mm-hmm. without getting into. So what Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, they are looking at into this particular book as not the outcome, but the process through which a particular decision or um, an analysis could be reached. And many a times they say that, like, look, what is being 
projected as a view that is not necessarily the well-based uh, mm-hmm. well-argued or well-thought-of view. So I think that's, that's the interesting part of that book and very engaging. Mm-hmm. So it's about how, you know, we have these beliefs that influence all these things, but actually how to look at the process of finding out what's actually true. Is that correct? That's correct. And interesting thing here is that YouGov, they did a survey mm-hmm. in the UK mm-hmm. and their question was, who do you trust? like different professions, starting with the nurses to the politician, they had a range of some 10, 15 professions. Uh-huh. It was a public uh, opinion survey. So guess what? Nurses came at the top. So they were asking the view of if you were to trust a person or the profession they are in, who would you trust and how much? So pretty much like the society was, uh, they, they trusted nurses the most. Economist. Uh, were way below, they were just above the politicians. Oh, wow. Right? So in the whole list, they were pretty much like the public doesn't trust them or their uh, analysis, uh, which is a sad part mm. because many of those um, economists who do, who are in kind of academic economists, particularly their research is quite good and uh, well thought of, but generally that doesn't match up with the public opinion. Exactly uh-huh. the same thing which I'm saying, that migration public thinks that it may take up their jobs as the cause of house price rises and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, while a sound economic analysis may tell something different. You won't believe the weather forecasters were still better trusted than the economists. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, yeah, that's an interesting one. So your question that, yes, uh, I think the book is arguing that how the, the not only um, the quick view, but rather um, the much more in-depth analytic mm. discussion that economists bring together is far more important than just the outcome. Yeah, yeah. I just think that sometimes... Um... It can be quite overwhelming, though, to have that in-depth conversation yeah. rather than just skimming through and making up a quick a quick assessment. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, not to say that we shouldn't do that, but I think that's just one of the reasons why we maybe we don't. Um, and so thank you for the book recommendation so that we can, you know, start to do some of that deep thinking and, you know, understand the issues a bit better. Yep. Thank you. Um, so, and moving on to a movie that you've enjoyed recently, have um, have you seen any? Yes, I did. And I'm an Indian by my ethnic background. Mm-hmm. So one of the recent movies that I watch is called Bheed. Bheed mm-hmm. means crowd. Uh-huh. Right. So, and this is an interesting movie because what happened during the COVID and once the lockdowns were announced in 2020, and uh, subsequently, India had another challenge. Again, that relates to the policy making and the decision which is made. So India announced um, lockdown just by a simple overnight decision. Mm. And uh, it was told somewhere in the midnight that, okay, from tomorrow on, everything would be shut. Wow. Without realizing that there are huge amount of uh, people who live in cities, they work in informal jobs, who have uh, insecure tenure or tenancies in their houses. So suddenly they found in the morning that their jobs were lost because uh, they were in informal and which also the uh, kind of tenancies in which they were living in, they were also at risk. Mm. So many of these people 
started moving back to their homelands from the, where they had migrated to these cities. But given that the transport and everything was shut, so many of them had to resort on walking all the way back. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was pretty much like a million people or more than a million people walking back homes, thousands of kilometers with all the kind of adversities. So the movie is about that and the mm -hmm. challenges. And it, the way the movie is, movie is uh, shot is India got its independence in 1947. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that time, there was a huge migration because India was partition in two countries. One is India and Pakistan. So there was mm -hmm. migration from uh, either side. And again, at that time, million, more than a million people migrated from either side. So this movie replicates with the same kind of thing mm -hmm. and says that like, look, in 21st century, we are going through the similar kind of challenges, which were there in the early 20th century. So we haven't progressed that much in that sense, neither in policy making nor in decision making. Mm -hmm. And people go through the same kind of. So I think it's if somebody were to watch, this would be a good, interesting movie to watch. And which brings some of those human aspects of the real problem at the forefront. And we in Melbourne were also debating about lockdown. But mm -hmm. our lockdown was more about, oh, I'm not able to go for a walk five kilometer and those kind of things. right? Yeah. But those are, those are important issues, no doubt about it, because mm -hmm. it, any curtailment of freedom causes a problem. But there people were migrating thousands and thousands of kilometers, walking barefoot or maybe on foot. Uh, that was far bigger challenge with no food, no water, and very little information about the uh, health and virus because yeah. all of us were still figuring out what it is. Mm. Yeah. Um, is this a documentary or um, a film? It's a film. So it's okay. um, like they, they mix the um, Indian film masala, as we call it, spices and that. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, there's a reality to that. Okay. I did some research and recently we were looking at uh, we had some good amount of data from World Bank mm -hmm. on a survey, which uh, this is another disaster, essentially. So we were looking at, okay, what caused reverse migration and what attracted people back into their rural hinterland? Because they are working there, they went to cities because there were more opportunities and so on and so forth. So why are they moving back? Couldn't they be resilient and come back and uh, whether the kind of you know, calamities that they are facing at the moment, why do they need to come back? What came out was during the first lockdown, it was pretty much because of emotional reason, everything was shut, but social capital played a very important role. And that's where probably uh, some of the work which you are doing around well-being, around the role of family, the role of support system, and so on and so forth, they become important. Mm -hmm. Because the families in the rural areas from which these uh, other families, uh, part of the families had moved uh, overseas, they had a very strong social capital back home, uh, which not only helped them in the economic difficulties, but were also able to provide them with other kind of support, which was not there in cities. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the reasons which we found in the earlier one. Then what happened that there was another lockdown, second lockdown. So the research there indicated, okay, first was because of the social capital and social support. The second was for the economic reason because cities were still closed. The work was not there and all the kind of things which were going on. Back home, 
the other type of economies were on uh, in operation. Like, for mm -hmm. example, agriculture economy was still working. There were some other schemes. Um, uh, some self-help groups were operating and so on. So that the third one, pretty much like by that time, everything, everybody had learned to live with, <laughs> with, with um, Corona. So mm -hmm. that was a normal situation. So okay. I think, yeah, that's the kind of thing that we found. Interesting. I guess I've never thought about um, the fact that people would be migrating for because of COVID. Um, I mean, I think because of COVID, you know, I had a very insular experience of what was happening because, you know, I couldn't leave that five kilometer radius that they had in Melbourne. Um, so during that time, I did, you know, have a very closed mind as to what was happening in the rest of the world. So that's really interesting to hear that. And, and, yeah, interesting to hear as well why people were, were moving back home. Um, and we do see that a little bit in Melbourne um, or in Australia because people were moving back in with, um, into their parents' homes. You know, adults who had lived um, in their own apartments, in their own houses, um, they moved back for a variety of reasons, you know, financial reasons, um, support reasons, all of those things. It's very interesting that it's um, similar but also quite different. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. The responses are very similar, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. that's where the role of family and yeah. support system and social connections and friends plays. Yeah. Because um, they are the shock absorbers during some of these things. And mm -hmm. as we learned during our later work related to bushfire or flood, is that families, for example, which were far more connected and which shared things, uh, even about the disaster and how they are coping with disaster, mm -hmm. they were able to recover much faster then those families which were not sharing and keeping uh, amongst themselves, like the members were not sharing with each other, like their challenges that they are facing or kind of um, difficulties that they are facing. So it's, it's it was necessary for that social capital to be there, mm -hmm. trust to be there mm -hmm. for members to come out of it. Interesting. Um... So we're, we're straying into our interview when we're still in the have you met section. All right, okay. That's uh, very interesting though. And I'm looking forward to talking more about that. Um, but we'll, um, uh, the next question I'd love to know about is if you listen to any podcasts. Well, I would love to listen to some of your podcasts. Oh, uh, like you. Because um, the earlier discussion that we had and mm -hmm. the range of topics that you yeah. are looking at, they sound very interesting and I would be very much interested in listening to that. Thank you. Yes. Uh, just for any listeners who aren't aware, um, LMSL, we have 10 podcasts for everyone to listen to. So if you want to find us, you can find it on the website. Um, all the links will be in the show notes. Um, but yeah, we talk about everything from family to well-being, relationships, uh, personal science, uh, just a huge range of things. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, and um, if you like, I'll send you a link afterwards so that, um, that would be great. you can find us. Great. Um, and do you have a role model? Yes. If I were to um, identify a role model, mm -hmm. it would be my parents. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you very briefly why. Uh -huh. So my father and mother... So um, they grew up, and when I was born, I was born in 1969, just 22 years after India got its independence. So they grew up in the time, pretty much when the India had started developing. Mm -hmm. uh, they had very limited resources. Uh, they had very limited. My father was probably one of the first one to um, go and do 
a formal employment kind of thing because we come from um, agrarian families and most of us were uh, my forefathers were into agriculture as their profession mm-hmm. uh, so very little resources and we were growing up but what they did and i think that's where the the regard and respect and uh, everything comes for them is that they offered us the opportunities and those opportunities are so important for developing our capabilities as children mm-hmm. which then contributes to the well-being that we are looking at so they had the tact they had the tenacity and togetherness mm-hmm. with which with the limited resources they were able to offer us those opportunities there were many kind of um, successes many failures many moments of tears and laughter and all that were there but what was important what kept them going was the one belief that what kind of opportunities can they create for their children irrespective mm-hmm. of whether their children fail or succeed that's thus immaterial but those opportunities that were offered there mm-hmm. together with the resources even though they were limited gave us the confidence to move ahead mm. yeah that's amazing um i do consider myself quite lucky sometimes because um Yeah my parents uh they've given me such great opportunities as well and I mean I see that with my grandparents you know my grandparents they um immigrated to Australia with very little and they managed to um you know send my parents to well uh, both my parents went to school and they managed to go to university and they that gave me the opportunity to you know go to a really great school and have all these opportunities that yeah. um so yeah it's it's um big big shout out big thank you to all the parents who've yeah. worked really hard to provide those opportunities for their children yeah i think there is a lesson for us as well in that mm-hmm. isn't it like uh, we shouldn't be judging our children mm-hmm. by what grades do they get or what uh, successes or failures mm-hmm. and so on and so forth rather we should be offering them the opportunities for mm-hmm. them to succeed which opportunity they make use of mm-hmm. will obviously depend on their personal capacity personal environment and personal characteristics but having opportunity itself is yeah enhancing their well-being right so it's it's pretty much like increasing their capabilities exactly exactly um you can't you can't um find out what you're going to thrive in if yeah. you don't have opportunities to try different things and to fail as well yeah, yeah. failure is part of life mm-hmm. we all fail many times many yes. times we get up and go is the important one mhm yeah. um and um do you have any courses that have inspired you uh i think i won't be able to um point to one but there are many mm-hmm. many courses which have really helped me um get going into that and many of them relate to well-being mm-hmm. so the podcast which um abhijit banerjee and esther duflo they have done you can find them on youtube mm-hmm. they are very interesting though they are economist and they are talking like an economist but having said that like they try and relate it to some of those uh common issues which some of uh, many of us would find interesting mm, yeah i i mean i do think that you know sometimes if you say something's you know about economics i'm a bit scared to think about it because it's it seems very far out of reach um but i think the the fact that they you're saying that they related back to you know everyday life and to some of these really important things um that makes it much more interesting i think for me and a bit less intimidating <laughs> So how do you define household management? Okay, so I'll define what 
has been defined as a science and then I'll define how I define it. Perfect. So the way household management is defined in literature as well as science, there are three parts to it. One is mm-hmm. organization, second is the financial management and third is day-to-day operation, pretty much like any corporate would define. So my being an economist, I see myself as a plumber. The reason is because what we do is pretty much uh, make sense of the data that is all there mm-hmm. and get uh, something out of it. So this is not my theory. This is exactly what uh, Abhijit and Esther Duflo also um, propose that how the role of economist is. So what is interesting here is that when I look at household management, household management is based on obviously intuition, intuition which is grounded in some of those scientific theories, but it also includes the guesswork because what we need to do, right? So because uh, if you try and put together those theories, they may or may not work within a household situation. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with your own wife, your children, and so on. And the third thing is trial and error. Mm -hmm. So that's an important one. You try something, it may work, may not work. Refine your thing and iterate away. So that's the household management to me. Mm -hmm. It combines, uh, it's an art and science that combines um, intuition with some kind of guesswork and trial and error mm-hmm. in order to reach the conclusion which is beneficial for the whole household. Yeah, I guess it's it's those the two elements and then they combine into the trial and error. Yeah. Um, so you have to do your research, you have to find, you know, different ways that everyone does different things, but then you have to um, understand that not everything's going to work for you and just try different things until you find something that does work for you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you um, do you think there are some misconceptions about household management? I think there are. There are the misconception that it's an exact science, which it is not. So mm-hmm. every household is different. Mm-hmm. Every member of household is different. They are they have their own personal characteristics. So if I were to say that, okay, here is a household management like a corporate, here is uh, everybody has to have an equal share in the roles that they play. They have to contribute in a particular way. Uh, Here is a KPI for everyone. (laughs) So (laughs) that doesn't work. (laughs) So what happens is that here a bit of art is required and Mm -hmm. a bit of sensitivity is required. So combination of all this will help us uh, in addressing some of the challenges that we face in everyday life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, something like um, understanding that sometimes, you know, uh, my partner might take the rubbish down, but he might be tired tonight and yeah, I'll do it. Um, and just making everything work and understanding each other. That's the sensitivity part. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, so I do like to um, start our podcast um, and start our main topic um, with a bit with a few definitions, so we know exactly what we're going to be talking about. Right. Um, so this might be sound very basic, but what is housing? So housing, the way we understand, it's mm-hmm. the place where we live mm-hmm. uh, and socialize and interact with our family members and friends. So it's. Um, place where we come back after work and spend our days and time there, or during our holiday, we spend most of our time there. It's a space where we interact with uh, other family members and socialize and um, discuss things and so on and so forth. However, 
the common understanding of housing and the discussion that we find is people are talking about housing as an asset, mm -hmm. as a financial characteristic that, okay, what is the value of a house, how it is appreciating over a period of time. What we lose there is to understand the role of housing in our well-being. Mm -hmm. What a house can do to what we are and what we aspire to be. Mm. House, to what extent does it protect us, give us a secure space where we feel comfortable, mm. where we can come back and be safe. How house can give us the esteem and social dignity because that's an important part, right? So because every human being aspires to have two things. One is a dignity mm -hmm. and also the social connection. And these two things are provided by house. So owning a house, for example, gives a dignified status, like a person feel empowered that I own a house, mm -hmm. I have a place to come back to. So these are the meaning which I would explore with you further when I talk about well-being, because these are the things which constitute and contribute to well-being. So yeah, I, I'd love to know what is well-being and how does uh, how does housing fit into well-being? So if we were looking at from a philosopher's point of view, mm -hmm. the Aristotelian view, the well-being is what a, uh, what one wants to be, um, like a state of happiness and so on and so forth. But it has different dimension. One has to look at what constitutes that well-being. Mm -hmm. So these would be, are you able to, am I able to live my life fully and happily. That's number one. Mm -hmm. uh, without any ailment, without any of those kind of challenges, hardships, and so on. Am I secure? Uh, am I safe, protected? Mm -hmm. Is my bodily health um, good? Then um, am I able to have a knowledgeable, good sense and thinking and so on? So am I able to converse well, am I able to contribute to the discussions well? Are my thoughts um, congruent and so on? The other part could be, uh, am I ha do I have a space and people to play with mm -hmm. uh, and so on? And then these are the kind of dimensions which contribute to well-being. But what is important here is, if you think about it, house is just a resource, mm -hmm. nothing more than that. So house is a resource it's a mean, not an end. It a me. It it is a mean to contribute to some of these dimensions. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's the important one, and that contributes to the well-being. Okay. So I imagine that the thing, things like safety and security, um, health as well, would be really important aspects of well-being that fit into housing because you're not going to feel secure, you're not going to feel safe um, if you don't have a home. And it's very hard to, you know, if your house is moldy or if you don't have secure housing, you're going to have maybe health problems. Yeah. Um, so th that's my guess as to how um, well-being is going to fit into housing. Yeah, or how absolutely. housing affects well-being yep. and then i guess in other ways um you know maybe you don't um maybe you know you don't socialize in your home but um if you can't go home and shower you might not have friends yeah, that's um, true. and that's yeah. some other ways that you know housing can affect our well-being is it can affect our socialization yeah, so absolutely. is that correct yeah absolutely i yeah. think these are some of those dimensions financial are also important because mm -hmm. are you able to be quit Mm -hmm. wealth to your children because if it's a store of wealth at the end of the day yeah. so that also is an important part of it so mm -hmm. here is something which you would gift it to your children who would then benefit from this asset mm -hmm. 
and enhance the opportunities. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you mentioned before as well that um, something that we often do is we see housing rather than as as um, something that we use to improve our well-being, um, um, a safe place for us to live. We see it more as a commodity. Um, so how does that affect how we approach housing? So I think that changes the whole mindset. Mm -hmm. So suppose if you were, if I was to look for a house, I would not look at how much the value of property will grow and which are the growth areas and so on and so forth. I will look at how it is going to contribute to my well-being. Mm -hmm. Is this house serving some of those objectives, which I think will enhance my capabilities? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, is the house close to, say, um, place of work or place of place where my children go to school or or are there enough green areas where I can go and recreate myself? Is the house enough where I can invite my friends and socialize? So those things become important mm -hmm. in that sense. So I'm not just looking at, okay, uh, is the house growing in the value, but I'm also looking at, is it going to contribute to the well-being by enhancing some of the capabilities which I have? Mm -hmm. There does seem to be some, I guess, overlap between um, housing as an asset and the well-being. For example, you said schooling. So I believe, you know, uh, houses near good schools are generally more expensive and they're going to be, um, you know, the 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 price is going to go up in that area if they um, have a new school or same thing with parks. You know, if you've got more parks, then it's going to be a more expensive house. Um, so... Is, is Does that mean that um, better houses tend to be more expensive and there isn't really that much difference between like well-being and housing as a commodity? I think housing as a commodity, you, you rightly said there that yes, house, houses which are close to schools, good schools or houses which are close to parks and other areas, they are valued higher than others. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, now suppose I am, uh, my children have gone to university, my children, uh, so I don't need that school anymore, mm -hmm. right? So that part of my uh, uh, well-being, that dimension of my well-being is probably not that important for me. But then I'm looking at, okay, now I'm at a stage where, whether I would probably need an art center near me or some other kind of um, activities around me. Mm -hmm. Should I still be stuck to that house or should I be looking at something? So one keeps on evaluating that well-being and how the dimensions of well-being are changing. Mm -hmm. And accordingly, one would say that, okay, how house as a resource or asset, as you would say, is contributing to the dimensions of my well-being. Uh -huh. So I'm not stuck to the value growth, but yeah. I'm looking at what it is doing to me mm -hmm. and how is it enhancing my well-being. Yeah. Right. So I guess instead of keeping that house that's near the school because it might grow in value by X percent, um, instead moving to maybe a slightly smaller house that doesn't have as great growth, have, have as good growth, um, and uh, accepting maybe that you won't make quite as much money in the yeah. next 10 years or something. Um, okay, interesting. It was very interesting. We did some research on bushfire. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2009, there was a bushfire which destroyed a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we had those interviews with the victims of those and they were quite heartbreaking interviews. But one thing which came out clearly out of those interviews that people were living near the bushes because they valued those bushes. Mm -hmm. So even though um, the risk is there and all that is there, so 
they lost many of them lost their homes completely mm-hmm. but they were still so attached to that location because they saw that it contributes to their well-being mm-hmm. so while if if you think about it when we are looking at disaster areas mm-hmm. sea level rise will cause flooding and the bushfire will um, i think there's a, another fear that this summer might be quite severe one but people do value some of those other intangible aspects that motivate them to still take some of those risk which otherwise probably uh, a rational um, advice to them would be not to take that but the mm-hmm. question then is that like housing is an asset that contributes to some of those dimensions mm-hmm. living near some of those areas yeah and i guess um I mean, I'm guessing that some of the reasons why people live in those areas is because it improves their well-being, you know. I believe living in nature and being surrounded by trees and bushes is really great for our mental health. Um, Absolutely. I I believe so. But then it comes with that risk, I guess, for your well-being again on the other side where your house could burn down. And so I guess it's about um, judging those risks yourself. Um, Yeah. Um, But you do bring up you know, bushfires and that disaster aspect, which is kind of what we're here to talk about, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Um, so what are what some of the challenges that people face when it comes to housing, you know, for example, bushfires? Um, are there some other examples that uh, you've looked at? Yeah, we did some research. We did research in uh, India after the floods. We did research in Japan after mm-hmm. the nuclear um, disaster, which also caused... Uh, tsunami and other challenges and then we also looked at the bushfire here in Australia now what is interesting and important in any of these situations is that um, when we look at the reconstruction Mm -hmm. after the disaster the focus is largely on the reconstruction of houses or the asset part of it Yes. In some cases, probably it, it becomes difficult to reconstruct those assets because they are still in those disaster-prone areas. So people are asked to move to another location. This happened in Japan. This happened in India, mm-hmm. where because the Fukushima nuclear disaster, that area was uh, not really inhabitable for a while. So people were asked to move to other locations like Tokyo and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, even though um, we reconstruct those houses, even though we um, relocate to arguably better houses but we miss upon one dimension that are they really contributing to their well-being so if we look at the satisfaction Mm -hmm. most of these people are dissatisfied despite like in india for example in chennai many of these people were moved from very fragile areas and very kind of uh, settlements which were um non-durable construction and so on and so forth to durable construction Mm -hmm. but they found it um, not that satisfying the same thing happened in japan people were moved to tokyo uh, but their children were unable to adjust in school people they were not able to mix with the neighbors and all that kind of problem so in the post-disaster context the asset-based reconstruction is not the solution what we need to do is to assess the losses differently. And that's where the well-being comes in picture. Mm-hmm. So are we able to reconstruct those dimensions of well-being? Housing or some other resources may provide a way, but they are not the end. 
Uh-huh. They are just the means. So you have to find a combination of ways. In one of the research which we did was the compulsory acquisition of land. So many of the houses were compulsorily acquired for different infrastructure projects. Now people were obviously given compensation on, on the market value basis. Uh, that should have, they, they could buy another house elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But the trouble there was that they were unhappy. Why people are unhappy? They were given compensation, which is the market value or better than market value. Mm-hmm. They could buy a house. The issue is more than that, is the location, the neighborhood, the social capital, everything that they are going to lose mm-hmm. once they move, which makes it difficult. So how do we reconstruct some of these things? And that is the core issue in our post-disaster reconstruction mm-hmm. that we miss. Uh-huh. So we don't look at from the well-being point of view. We rather look at, okay, we reconstructed the house. We gave them the uh, compensation. We probably provided some additional to buy their house and car and furniture and so on. But that's not enough mm. because it doesn't really contribute. Mm. So you're saying that, you know, some of those things, it's like the community and it's... Um... Family, the family, friends. friends, the people around you. Yeah. So in that case, you know, I don't know, for example, the town is flooded. Um, would you then recommend um, taking the whole town and building a little community for them, you know, a little bit further away, but making sure that they're all together? Yeah, I think the problem here is, as uh, we can, we recognize the challenge here, the locale cannot be... Um, Locale and location cannot be separated in some mm-hmm. sense. But here the problem is we have to separate in a post-disaster context. So yeah. we have to move people. So mm-hmm. you cannot 100% reconstruct what has been lost. Yeah. But one should attempt to reconstruct in some way mm-hmm. so that some of those, if we recognize that social capital is important, being close to family and friend is necessary, giving a voice to people who have lost their home in the design and future relocation is important, then probably we'll think about reconstruction differently. Okay. So yeah, so it's 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 about the community, but it's also about choice and autonomy. Absolutely. Um, so not just shoving people into Tokyo and saying, well, this is where you're going to live. Yeah. It's giving people the option, I guess, to choose whereabouts they want to live, if they want to live near yeah, how their to family, design their how homes. to design their homes as well, yeah. of course. Interesting, but it, that seems like it would be a it, it'd be a very expensive and much more arduous um, process than just building a house and telling people that that's where they're going to have to live. Okay, I think that's a very good question because it touches upon another interesting point. Mm-hmm. It will be expensive compared to just building a house mm-hmm. if you think that the cost of reconstruction is only the house. Mm-hmm. But think about it: if a family is unhappy for next 30, 40 years of their living life, the mental health, the cost of mental health to that family is enormous. That then also has implication on their productivity, which then has implication of economic uh, contribution to the society. So I guess maybe if you take the social cost, that far outweighs the expense that you would have to incur in doing it right at the beginning. Okay. Um, But I mean, so... That would, and that this is this is a government thing, right? So, um, this so you're you're saying that the government needs to be looking more at the wider picture, at um, looking more at well-being rather than just building houses. Yeah, I think what what is important here is government is just one part of the player, mm-hmm. one of the players in the whole reconstruction, because um, what happens is that usually the government budgets are not enough 
to meet the reconstruction cost. So there are lots of things that go in there. Government budgetary allocation is one. The insurance is another one. The third is the aid agencies, uh, because many of these disasters, which are large, particularly that happened in Indonesia and other places, Asia and other, a uh, huge amount of reconstruction work was done by multilateral and aid agencies. So there are lots of these um, resources which are required in order to reconstruct. But what happens here is that everybody comes with a very narrow focused agenda. And then the problem is that at times it becomes a disjointed effort. Uh, what gets uh, built is pretty poor quality housing. Uh, the affected people are not satisfied with it and they usually despise to be there and those locations. And hence it's important. One is to take their voice right at the beginning. Probably it will save a lot of cost later on in order to fix it, fix yeah. the problem. But it also seems to me that it would also take more time to coordinate yeah. all these people, you know, what they want and also coordinating them with the various organizations and governments involved. Um, it would, just from my opinion or, or what I was thinking is, um, you know, you're in a disaster, you've got a million people who need housing. Um, it, you know, you could either take 10 years to build the perfect housing or you could take two years to build uh, fine housing. So uh, for me, I would be thinking, well, I'll just build fine housing um, and then I can house all these million people in two yeah. years rather than having kids growing up um, in in a place that maybe is unhygienic or, you know, isn't suitable for them. Um, yeah. So how do you, I guess, balance those, those things? Also the time aspect. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. Time is crucial here and time uh, is an important one. So I guess maybe what happens is that that's where some of the research that tells us that where people are involved, their recovery is faster. Mm -hmm. As I said to you in the household case also, that if you involve the members of household, if they know that what kind of adversities or what kind of challenges the family is facing, mm -hmm. probably the family can get over with those challenges much easier and quicker. Uh -huh. The same thing happens at the community level. The community is just an extension of a family, mm -hmm. right? So more families uh, come together and that becomes a community. So. In this case, while temporary accommodation is important, but if community is managing some of those things, mm. they are sharing and discussing and doing things together, rather than disbelieving what is being done by any of these other agencies, then it becomes easier for them to overcome. Resilience is far more important than the time that it takes to say build a new house, uh -huh. right? Because if the community is resilient, they are able to come back and they will able to support themselves, their mental health and well-being would be much better and they would then move on and do the things okay. in the right way. Okay, so I guess instead of focusing on building um, enough houses in, in two years, uh, taking that time to build over 10 years, but then also involving the community and Absolutely. having programs that's for the, the community, important. that's yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. Interesting, I think that's so different from how I imagined you know, disaster, what happens after a disaster, and I think probably what has been happening. Um, yeah, so how how is that, how are we gonna implement that? I think it's easier than, uh, like, uh, we think that it's difficult, but it's easier. Mm -hmm. Because, see, in the bushfire case, when we were doing that study and we interview, we, we were analyzing the interviews uh, that the people uh, who were affected by this, guess who they trusted the most? 
they trusted the most all those community um, worker like nurses and the other support um, infrastructure support stuff that was there they did not trust the politician they did not trust the policy maker they did not trust any of those mm-hmm. but they were far more engaged with the community workers and the uh, nurses and all because uh, their role in the whole they're just the frontline people right so even in um, covid case people were trusting doctors and nurses rather than what was being told to us on the television or who they were telling because these were the people who we they could identify that they were the ones who were sympathetic with them who understood their problem who could then possibly help them in coming overcoming some of these while the uh, money was to come from budgetary allocation of governments at different levels but people were not trusting any of their decisions right it's exactly the same thing mm-hmm. right? so in, in that case is it is it um you know better for the bigger organizations just to give money to the smaller organizations that have the trust i think the trust uh, how they do it operational aspect of it i would not be able to comment on that because okay. we uh, there are a number of different ways in which uh, possibly it can be tried and i have not studied that mm-hmm. but what is important is that it's important to build trust first with the community so then the flow of funds and other things could be um, could be decided it was very interesting in one of the interviews that we did that was um, in a different context so some of these reconstruction agencies what we heard is that the bureaucracy that is at different levels of government that in some ways uh, acts as a hindrance towards flow of funds mm. so uh, rather than form filling it's important that uh, some of those uh, trust building exercises are done i think the role of politician as an elected leader should be to build trust with community because once that trust is there then you can reconstruct easily yeah mm. okay so i think so we need politicians to change um how they um, interact with the community then that's one of the ways you know the ways okay so natural disasters are certainly one challenge that um people face but i would expect most people don't have to face hopefully most people won't have to face those types of challenges so what are some other challenges that you know more people are experiencing now um particularly in australia but also worldwide yeah i think in the contemporary environment there are few challenges that many of us are facing one is because of the rising interest rates or mortgage repayments have skyrocketed uh, the second challenge is the housing affordability or rental affordability the people who are living in rental one is the shortage of r- rental housing and the rents have risen quite substantially so there are significant impact or dent on household budgeting in that sense mm-hmm. so these are two challenges that uh, people are facing yeah so uh, how how do these affect um people's well-being i think it does it affects well-being uh, as as one would think because uh, money is also a resource isn't it like so that contributes to many dimensions of well-being and once that is strained that would have um, impact on um, well-being the opportunities get reduced but i think um, here the role of social capital within the family plays an important part uh, i remember that in my own household way back when i was a child uh, my parents well 
they didn't have that many that much of money in terms of their income but they would discuss with us that look and then everybody would readjust their budget they would not say that you reduce your budget reallocation for say something else but it was a natural tendency that when family shares they readjust their consumption basket in a way that would possibly allow them to overcome some of these challenges mm-hmm. uh, somebody someone might postpone buying their shoes or some of those durable goods which can be postponed and focus more on the essential consumption they might postpone their holidays that i may not go to bali this year maybe leave it for the next year so there are possibilities within the household that people can manage now one important thing is that we have to do some stress testing as the banks would also do mm-hmm. within the household that if our incomes or budget is trained by three uh, uh, let's say by 20-25%, how are we going to manage that? And that can only be done with the whole family uh, sitting together and discussing that. Mm. It's it's um, difficult, I think, to get your budget under control and to manage your finances if one person's um, off there, you know, spending all their money on clothes or um, buying the expensive ice cream. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. that's, that's an important one. Like, but if... Uh, the decision is collector, then it's mm-hmm. possible to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so those are some of the challenges that we face. And so, and you're saying that um, you can overcome those um, by communicating more and maybe just making um, smarter financial decisions together as a team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because as an economist, I would not say that, okay, um, I would not blame government or banks or anybody else there because uh, recent recent, uh, popular television uh, news would tell us, ah, mortgage is rising, most of Australians are in stress and all that. That's true, we are. But the question there is that, like, what is the prudent economic um, outcome in a situation where the inflation is rising, where uh, all those other challenges are there. So th- the only way is the rise in interest rate in order to control those uh, pressures which are there on prices. So that is a natural macroeconomic policy mm-hmm. that is going to be there. It will bite household budget, no doubt about it. But then household can manage those things by readjusting some of their consumption because economy is at, on one hand, one has to manage the economy, but in the same way, the same kind of um, difficult decision are required at the household level. Mm-hmm. And that's where the importance of relooking at it and readjusting with the data that we have at the household level. Mm-hmm. What is being consumed? Who is consuming? Are we switching off our uh, light bulbs when we walk out because electricity bills are rising? We can manage that. So there are lots of those different ways in which um, the consumption could be readjusted or recalibrated. Mm. And I think what you were saying about, um, you know, readjusting um the budgetary constraints by you know just communicating with the family is also maybe what the government's doing with us which is they're saying this is what's happening and they're saying that through both you know policy and also through interest rates and then everyone else is having to adjust to that yeah that's right i can at the household level when i translate that 
I cannot be saying that, okay, um, my partner is consuming too much of, she is buying too many clothes. So uh, that's, it's not like everybody needs to look at their own personal expenses. Mm. And that's what we have started doing at our house. Like I've kept a diary. We don't question each other. We don't say that like, look, what are you spending on on how you are spending on none of those. Just come at the end of the day and write how much did you spend. That's it. Nobody's going to audit it and uh, put a red flag there. Okay, you have exceeded none of those. But like it's a self-reflection mm. there, self um auditing that one does that oh was it necessary that i drank five coffee uh ten coffee and had a lunch outside while i could have taken a lunch box with me so i think these are the, some of the questions which one could ask in mm -hmm. difficult times yeah and i think it also that also honors i guess um sometimes you do need to eat lunch out because there yeah. is nothing in the fridge yeah. and um you aren't in some ways um, caring for your own well-being by spending money sometimes, even if it does seem a little frivolous. So that's um, that's a really great, I think, um, suggestion is to to keep note of things, you know, so you can understand uh, what is happening with your finances, but also being um, being lenient with yourself and with others as well. Absolutely. Mm. So, you know, so, you know, with mortgages going up and with uh, rent going up, you know, buying a house seems quite distant for, for people. Um, I think particularly my age, um, owning a house doesn't seem like something that could happen anytime soon. Do you have like any um, suggestions if we do want to break into the housing market, you know, how we can go about that? I think um, there, th this question can be answered in um, slightly different way in the sense that what we are seeing as a trend mm -hmm. as many um, younger cohort millennials and the people who are just around that age they are preferring to rent mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why they want to rent at this stage is yes um, because the ownership is becoming far more expensive but what is also is happening is that the preferences are changing. Mm -hmm. They want to live closer to public transport. They want to live way back in the city where there are um, other kind of amenities out there and so on and so forth. So I think that's not a bad thing because ownership of a house is an important, but if you take the well-being dimension in the sense that if asset or value growth is not the sole objective of having a house, mm -hmm. then having these other tenures is equally attractive in the sense that it meets your well-being different dimensions. So that's that should be perfectly fine. But if you think that ownership will give you will contribute to your well-being and would enhance what you think your capabilities in the future, you can do that. Like it's not necessary that at this stage you buy a house which will be your perfect dream house that you will live forever rather have a stepping stone like just one house and then keep on moving as the opportunities and resources allow you to do that mm -hmm. yeah because my partner and i in, the, in a situation where um we we value very much um the ability to walk to our shops um, we value being able to take public transport and having um parks around us we what we don't value is driving you know, an hour to live somewhere. We don't particularly value 
um, a larger place to live. So we have compromised by living, you know, in the city um, where it's quite a small apartment, but it's fine. Um, so I like that that is, uh, and I certainly get a lot of comments, you know, you should start buying a house, Gabriella, you know, yeah, start no, saving up. So Gabriella, what Gabriella should do is that you're living in perfect house, which mm -hmm. meets your, um, because you, your well-being dimensions are what? You mm -hmm. want to be close to the shops. You want to close yeah. to park because you can exercise and mm -hmm. do all that kind of stuff. You want to be close to other amenities which you value. Mm -hmm. And that's the important point. Mm -hmm. Maybe down the line, as your family will become bigger and you would need those other spaces, that is a time when you have to readjust and mm -hmm. see that, okay, now what should I look for? Yeah. And I also imagine that, you know, um, if I did want to have kids, then... Um, you know, having the, I guess, insecurity of a rental where I could be kicked out next year yeah. is um, a lot more important. So I'd maybe look at buying then because it's a lot harder to kick me out of a house that I own. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's an important point. And also the identity and empowerment comes with ownership, mm -hmm. no doubt about it. And uh, as one moves into that ladder from one stage to another in life, one moves in that direction as well. The other thing you, you mentioned about identity, I find very interesting because being in a rental, it's, you know, I think now I'm allowed to paint it and now I'm allowed to put paintings up. But when I first moved in, we weren't allowed to do those things. So it was very much, I couldn't change the apartment to my identity. So moving into a house, yeah. um, I would be able to paint it and I'd be able to, I guess, um, show my identity in my house. And I would also... Um, have that, um, have that, I guess, empowerment from, from having my identity shown in the house and having, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's the crucial part here because the identity, uh, and empowerment comes with the ownership of house. So house is a resource which gives you that identity mm -hmm. and gives you that empowerment. And that's, those are the dimensions of well-being ah, that yeah. gives you the feeling that you're happy and, um, reaching uh, attainment in life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you um, are thinking that you'd like to talk about? I think one of the um, questions that you had asked me earlier was mm -hmm. about like if somebody is in rental stress or mortgage stress. Yeah. Uh, given that uh, some people may be, because what happens is that in the good times, which was a few years back when the interest yeah. rates were pretty low, yeah, many of us took a uh, housing loan, which was yeah. on a teaser rate, as we call it. And banks were also selling those teaser rates. Yeah. So if somebody is on that kind of situation where they are feeling the pinch, I think it's a good idea not to um, kind of suffer, but rather talk to your banks and see if uh, there is a way in which your repayments could be uh, re-looked at. And no bank would want people to default because it's not good for them either, for their business. So they would be happy to negotiate and talk uh, and see whether it can match with your repayment capabilities. So that's on the uh, on the ownership side. But on the rental side also, there are some um, help on offer, like for example, Tenants Victoria is an agency which, can, which one can speak to and discuss what the options are. Because I know at this stage, and uh, many of our students, uh, since I teach at the university, they were finding very difficult in getting a rental accommodation in the market. Mm. So where, wherever they would put in their application, there would be 100 other applications there. So it, it was becoming very difficult. 
So there are some of these agencies like Tenants Victoria or maybe um, WeCat if there are problems with uh, landlord and so on. So one should access some of these services. One shouldn't feel shy about it because these are there to help. Mm. Um, that's actually interesting that you say that because uh, I do have friends who, um, so I, I believe the law is that you cannot increase rent uh, more than once a year. And my friend was telling me that their rent had been increased twice that year and it increased by, you know, something like $200 All right. and she couldn't afford it anymore. Um, and when so, I heard that, I was like, well, you need to go to, you know, tenants, the Tenants Association or um, whoever's in charge of that type of thing, because... I think she should go to Consumers yeah, Affairs. Yeah, Consumer Affairs, because yeah. um, I'm pretty sure that's illegal and yeah. um, you need to discuss what the options are there, because you... And she didn't want to move immediately because, you know, it's it's a lot of work to move. It's, it's really yeah. hard to find a rental. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree with you. What is happening at this... One is the cost. Moving mm -hmm. has a cost because you have to move. Yeah. So uh, all the stuff has to move. So there's a cost in, involved with that. But there's a search cost also in the sense that at this moment, it's becoming difficult to find an accommodation. Mm. So I guess um, the number of rental accommodation that are on offer are not that many. So which makes it challenging at the moment. Mm -hmm. So yes, thank you for bringing up the, the, ver the different associations that people can you know, go to if they do need help in Victoria. Um, and we will put those uh, links in the show notes if anyone right. wants to find them. Um, I do believe as well that they provide lots of good advice. So even if you're not sure, you can ask them and see if um, see what they say. Yeah. And one advice for those who are aspiring to become homeowners or looking at buying house is that when they do their repayment capability test, I think they should build in the stress testing that if the interest rates were to rise by 3%, would they still be able to repay or not? Because teaser rates are just teaser rates. They, If somebody is already uh, at the top of brink in, in, in the sense that like paying the top dollar, and if some shocks of this kind happen, that could topple everything. So I think it's important that some stress testing household should do uh, by themselves and see that if the interest rates go up by 3%, whether they would still be able to manage that mortgage or not. So these are some of the lessons which we learn as we go along. I think that's a, that's great advice because as we've seen in Australia, um, well, we've had um, 12 months of um, inflation, continuous, yeah. yeah, continuous increases, uh, which no one was expecting. And I have friends in that situation where they got a mortgage when it was very low, when they've got a vari variable mortgage, I believe it's yep. called. And now they're paying a lot of money yep. on their mortgage payments yep. um, that they weren't expecting. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. Anything else that? I think um, happy to, if somebody has any question, they are happy to send me an email and I will yes, thank you. probably and give that advice to the extent I can. Great, thank you. Um, so yeah, if you do want to send him an email, um, we'll put the email in the show notes yeah. so everyone can can find you and send you lots of questions. All right, okay. Um, so we'll move on to our practice debrief. Um, so what is a practice you do in your own home to manage your home and your housing? Uh, I think what we do, we um, there are a few things, as I said to you. One is the financial management. We have started that diary where mm -hmm. everybody writes their account uh, and, and see what is being spent and on what. What is essential, what is non-essential, what is conspicuous, what is non-conspicuous. 
in order to understand a little bit better about um, the expenses. So that helps in um, managing the budget in this time, particularly when um, our incomes are rising at the inflation rate, while all other expenses are rising double the inflation rate or more than double the inflation rate. So it's important that we understand the expenses. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that in terms of uh, distributing the work, we take uh, more like a kind of a sympathetic or consensual approach in the sense that it's not that um, everybody has to contribute equally and all that, depending on uh, everybody's personal characteristics and strength, we distribute what one will do. So that's another thing which we try and practice in our house. Okay, how does that work? Like, how do you decide who does what? Um, I think we, so what happens is that, suppose I um, I take up some work and I'm doing that. If others see me doing that work continuously and it takes me a lot of time and effort, um, they themselves chip in. So uh -huh. what happens is it puts them under kind of a moral pressure to contribute. <laughs> so then the work gets decided or divided uh, uh, okay. through its own. We reach the optimal distribution yeah. naturally rather than forcibly. Okay, so rather than saying, um, you need to do the dishes today, yeah. um, you know, maybe you start doing the dishes and other people go, oh, yeah. Um, maybe I should go help with the dishes. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's how the work. Okay. He did dishes, so let me do washing the clothes, or let me do something else, or vacuuming, or whatever. So that's how. Uh, what happens is that the optimal, and so what it does is that it's not uh, that I will have to do dishes day in and day out. That doesn't. So work keeps on moving around, mm -hmm. and somehow that optimal is there because. If family is together, family is there, and there's a communication and social capital there, uh, nobody wants others to be in stress, right? So they try and distribute and do things so that everybody benefits. I was going to ask what happens, um, you know, if you've got, say, um, in my household, my brother, when he was a teenager, like many teenagers, didn't want to help with the household chores at all. So um, he just would, you know, we'd ask him to help with the dishes and he just wouldn't do that. So how do you, I guess, if you do have one member of the family who doesn't want to help, how do you, how do you get them involved? It's the same thing as you would do in an organization. Suppose there is a team mm -hmm. and one, one worker is not contributing. Mm -hmm. So punishing is not the solution. Mm. Rewarding, of course, uh, would not work because uh, those guys be will become used to rewarding. But what helps is that how do we draw them into the conversation? How do we extract maybe something as uh, probably problematic there in the sense that the person has some concerns or issues. So we have to identify those concerns and issues and find what is the best work for them to do. They may not be, um, they may not, like doing the dishes or they may not uh, be, what do you call it, proficient in doing dishes or whatever be the reason, but they might be proficient in going and uh, putting the garbage out or going to shop and uh, bringing the groceries around. So one has to work with that. It takes time, mm -hmm. uh, requires conversation and trial and error, as I said to you. So trial and error would probably lead to some optimal 
solution. Okay, that's great advice. Um, uh, we'll move on to the open mic section now. That's where you get a chance to talk about something that you're passionate about. It can be related to our topic today, but it doesn't have to be. Did you have something in mind? Um, one of the topics which I am really passionate about is the well-being, which mm -hmm. we have been discussing here. Yes. And um, I think how do we enhance or how do we contribute to enhancing people's capabilities? Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of here, I would like to give you an example here. I teach a subject which is called humanitarian design. So here the subject takes students to developing countries and uh, the idea here is that they will mix with the communities there, understand the culture, identify a problem and provide a design-based solution there. So what we have found over the number of years that again, bringing back the initial discussion about beliefs and uh, norms that one espouses clouds their understanding of the problems that others may have. So that's what happens that many of the students that when when they go to those communities, they think that, okay, they have a particular understanding and they think that what they propose as a solution is the best solution for, mm -hmm. for, for others, which may or may not be true. So I guess maybe it's important for us to kind of understand the challenges from different perspective, more starting with the information that we have got, how we analyze it, and then we look at it. So when we do the well-being analysis, that's what we are trying to do here. And we are trying to understand, because each context, each culture has a very different understanding of well-being. What determines well-being in Australia is very different than what it would be in India or Indonesia or maybe in Japan or somewhere else. We need to understand that. And that's the quest which I'm on. So we are looking at different kind of culture, different kind of context, try and understand what determines well-being there uh -huh. and how different kind of disasters, they affect okay. those well-being. Do you mind maybe um, just maybe uh, having two countries and, you know, showing some differences in how they view well-being? All right. Okay. So let me take the example of India mm -hmm. and um, Australia. Uh, from the India's perspective, the well-being, one of the major uh, dimension of well-being there is the, let's say, gender empowerment mm -hmm. and equality of opportunities. Now, these things are important there because, because of the social and cultural norms. Uh, there have been discrimination against different caste, different genders, and so on and so forth. While some of those things are not that relevant in the context of Australian, while gender is important, I'm not saying it's not, and gender discrimination, wage gaps are all there, mm -hmm. but not to the extent as they would be in those countries. So when we are looking at, say, housing or land ownership, the ownership of land by women plays a very important role in enhancing their well-being. Mm -hmm. While in Australian context, probably it's already there like women can buy a house or buy land as much as anyone else. Uh -huh. Inheritance, in case of India, becomes far more male-oriented. So the, it's a male member of family who will inherit the property. Mm -hmm. Though law says that all children would equally inherit, but generally that's the tradition. But in this case, in case of Australia, that's not. So it's important to understand these different cultural dimensions and how they play out within the well-being context. Hmm, interesting. Um... 
yeah, I was like, oh, Australia is, we still need work on, on gender, but no, we, um, do. we do. Yeah, we do. But the uh, level of or the degree mm-hmm. is different. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like here also, there is a gender um, balance, which is a required equality is an important one. Wage gap is there. However, in India, it's far more. It's It goes to the uh, level of if, say, family is limited in terms of the food that they have, the first member who would be fed would be a male member. Mm. So it's at that level. So the degrees are very different. Mm. Yeah. Many other developing countries would face the similar kind of challenges. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. I mean, not uh, not necessarily a happy topic, but certainly something um, that is worth thinking about. Yeah. Um, so thank you for coming and talking to me today. Thank you very much, Gabriela. It's a pleasure to be here yes. and I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. So you've already said that your email is open to anyone who wishes to uh, talk to you. Yep. Um, are there any other ways that people can get in contact with you or find out more about you? I think email would be the best because I do look at emails and try and respond. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And again, just in case you've missed it, uh, you can find that in our show notes. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very today. much. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.